Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I want to go further into this uh, teaching that we touched on uh, last week. Um, let me reset the, re, re, reset the stage for you. Um, it's concerning this very large concept, and we're just going to approach it. We're not going to cover the entire thing, but this idea of the throne of glory. What is this? Kisei HaKovid, it's, it's, it's in Hebrew, or the throne of Hashem would be another way of saying it. What, what is this? What is it? Um, what happens there? And, and like I say, it's, it's, a, it's a very large topic, but, but I just want to touch on, on, on uh, it a little bit. So, so we say that the, the souls of Israel emanate from the Kisei HaKovid. So that's, that's a large thought. And right now I'm, I'm, I'm saying over a, uh, a piece of Torah from Reb Tzadak Akon, from Tekanus HaShavin. And, and basically he makes a, an observation, I don't know if it's his, it's just a statement of kind of Kabbalistic fact, that, that you have the realm of the angels. It's, that's in um, a place called um, um, Olam Yitzira. These are technical terms, but just get this idea that the that the throne of glory is above the realm of the angels. And what did we just say? We just said that the souls of Israel are emanating from, from the throne of glory, from the Kisei HaKovet, which is above this dimension where the angels are. Which means, very clearly, that the souls of Israel are above the angels or at least have the potential to be, <laughs> right, if we're doing the right thing. So, but why? But why and how? How could a person who's fallible be better than an angel who's infallible? Right, that's a pretty good question. Like, we strive for perfection, or at least we should try to, at least try to strive for perfection. We should, if we can't be good, let's want to at least want to be good, right? Like that's, even that's a level. So, but still the question remains, how can someone who's imperfect, inherently imperfect, because humans are inherently imperfect, right? Like as Reb Shlomo said, um, this world is like a big hospital clinic and every single person who's here is here to fix some, something, fix an aspect of their soul. So, so from there you see we're all kind of born with something that we need to repair. So, so there's an inherent imperfection on some level. So how can a people who are inherently in need of some kind of fixing be higher than angels who are perfect? That, that's the question. And the answer is, it's a, it's a great answer. It's, a, it's actually, it's a fabulous, fantastic answer. The answer is, is that only human beings are able to serve God through struggle. Like if you think of like an angel, an angel can do the, the, the word of God, the desire of God perfectly, but there's no struggle involved to do it. Right? Like a dog or a cat or a worm or an ox doesn't have free will, can do the will of God perfectly, whatever God is directing them to do. But they can't choose to serve God, and they can't choose to serve God and then struggle to do the best version of what they're trying to do. Only a human being can do that. 
And human beings are unique in all of creation. I mean, imagine how big creation is. I learned this factoid um, not so long ago, which I love, that in, I think it was 2016 or 2000, I think it was 2016. Um, this is from the LA Times. 18,000 new species were discovered. In 2016, maybe it was 2017, alone, 18,000 new species. Can you imagine? So we're still discovering, and by the way, they say that, that like, one of the great frontiers is not even outer space, it's the, the depths of the ocean, right? And we don't even have a clue as to what's down there. There's like basically a whole nother world down below, deep down on the ocean floor. And we don't even know what's on there because obviously, well, if you don't know, maybe it's not obvious, but as you get further and further down in the ocean, the crushing, it's crushing amounts of weight that gets on top of you. You know, if you, if you just think like, if you try to pick up a, say you're mopping the floor, you pick up a bucket of water, it's heavy. Can you imagine what, <laughs> I don't even know how many pounds it is. Once you get a mile below, two miles below, whatever it is. I mean, you're talking about millions or tens of millions of pounds on top of you. I, I don't know the numbers, but you get the idea. Anyway, so, so when we talk about the amount of species that are out there in the universe, and, 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 and you know, galactically speaking as well, you know, to think that human beings are the only ones in the entire universe who have the opportunity, the privilege, the glory of serving God through struggle. And that's very precious to God. It's very precious to God that there should be a being, like, I, I may have mentioned this last week, like, to me anyway, my mind goes to, like, sometimes when people, or I think often, um, when people get famous, they get suspicious. Why do they get suspicious? Because, well, I just met you, but why do you want to be friends with me? Because I'm famous, right? Or someone who's like a billionaire. Why are you being nice to me? Because you want my money, right? And it's a natural thing, if you think about it. I think it's, it's very understandable why their mind goes in that direction. I've, I've known um, some people, I'm thinking of one person in particular who's a famous person, but I knew him before he was famous. And, and he's so super friendly all the time. Like, compared to the amount we're in touch, which is hardly ever, because he knows that we were friends before he was famous. So he knows I don't want anything from him. So what about God? <laughs> you know, all these, all these creatures do the will of God. But they know who God is. So God says, what if I create this amazing creation who doesn't necessarily, bless you, who doesn't necessarily know who I am. We'll see. Like, what if, what if the king is disguised? What if the king is disguised? Will he be nice to that person who looks like he's a beggar or something like that? Then I know this person's really my friend. So what does God do? He, dis he, he creates a world and he disguises himself in this world. Now remember, one of the great pieces of Torah, you have to, this is like a cash Torah, you have to know this, which is the word for world 
in Hebrew is olam. The word that the root of that is ayin lamid mem, which is also means hidden, because God is hidden in this world. One of the reasons God made this world was to be hidden in it. Now, as soon as you learn that, you have to have, you have to learn this other thought to balance it out so that you don't get the wrong idea, which is that God is as present in this world, in this quote-unquote hidden world, as he is in the upper dimensions. He's just more hidden. He's as present. He's 100% as present here as he is in the upper realms. He's just more hidden. Okay? So it's not like there's less God here in this world. There's an equal amount of God in this world, but you have to look for him. The king is disguised, so to speak behind nature, right? Looks like nature or science, right? Is, is running things, right? Or big strong people with guns are running things, right? But God is running things. That's, that's who's running things, okay? All right, so, so now we as his creations who have free choice, who have the ability to go, nah, you're making the whole thing up, right? Because the, the classic formulation, did God create man or did man create God? Right. This is like what, like, you know, brilliant philosophers, you know, scratch their heads over, you know. Meanwhile, every thought that you're having is coming from God. (laughs) The only reason why you're able to breathe while you're coming up with that heretical thought is because God is keeping you alive. Genius, you know. So. So the point is. The point is, is that God desires that creature who who's. Whose, whose presence the creature seeks out. In other, words, in other words, we are the only creature where the presence of God isn't obvious to us. And then we can choose to serve him. And then God says, okay, now I know who my friends are. And it's hard for you? It was hard for you to do it? Wow, that's even more amazing. It's even more amazing. We're the only ones in all of the universe who can do that. No one else can do that. Okay, so that's, that's the long answer of how it is that human beings, with their flaws, are higher than angels. That makes sense, doesn't it? Makes, makes sense, yeah. And it, and it makes you value your own struggle. Because when you struggle, instead of saying, what's the matter with me? Why is this so hard for me? You can say, wow, you know, I, I'm engaging in this process that I'm the only creature in the universe who's in, engaging in this process. Okay, and imagine how much light comes out of you when you're able to do that, right? When you're able to do something, you know, there are different answers to this question. This is one of the great questions. In fact, there's a fancy word for it. It's called theodicy. What is theodicy? It means, why do the righteous suffer? It's the whole field of theology. Why do the righteous suffer? So the rabbis give you a very good answer to that, which is, we don't know. Then they give you hundreds of examples and reasons why. <laughs> but they begin with the truth, we don't know, and then, then they'll tell you an earful. Okay. One of the many reasons that I heard, which is interesting, I think, 
Like you say, hey, this person is righteous. Why are they going through that hard time? And this is just one, one answer, one of many, many answers to, to a question that ultimately we don't know the reason for, by the way, is that because when they overcome it, when they overcome this struggle, they will be an, an example and a role model to other people how you can overcome this struggle. So that that person has been given this struggle in order to be an inspiration for other people around the world. They'll say, oh, you know something I knew about this guy, or you know the, that family over there, or you know that person? He had that same thing, and, and he, he got over it. And you go, okay, well, I can, I can get over it too. In other words, the process of getting through a struggle, you emit a great source of light into the world that, that other people will see. Other people will see, they'll hear about it, and, and, and this, is, this, is, this is one of the things. Okay. So again, we have this, this throne of glory. Now, just again, a regular caution. Don't think of a giant chair in outer space. <laughs> That's where the mind goes. Don't do that. The, the rabbis give you that type of phraseology and that type of imagery just so you can begin to have something to wrap your mind around. But don't, don't be so foolish as to think there's a giant chair in outer space. Okay? It's, it's beyond that. But these are the words that we use. Okay. So, so we have this throne of glory where the souls of the Jewish people are emanating from. Remember, I'm emphasizing the Jewish people, especially because we have this name Yisrael. When did we get this name? How did we get this name? When Yaakov Avinu wrestled with the angel and won. And then God says, you're going to have a new name, Israel, which means to struggle with God and to win. So in other words, our very name comes from the place that comes from this struggle and this ultimate victory. So, so that struggle, again, is, is not just um, very much a part of the human condition and each one of our individual lives, but it's very much embedded in our national mission and our national life as well, so, and our destiny as well. So you, you see that in, in the word Yisrael. Um, because Yisrael was the name of an individual, Yaakov, but it's also the name of the nation. So there's two things going on there. Okay. So, so let's go further. We have, we have this idea that this throne of glory, where the souls are emanating from, are, are, above, the, are above the angels. And now, if you, if you have a chance... Um, we sort of did it before I started the talk over here, but I, if, if you have a chance, uh, I would put this on pause and grab a chumash, a, uh, a, you know, a copy of the Torah, so that you can see this with your, your own eyes, because we're going to get something very specific about the letters um, spelling out the throne of glory. Okay, And if you have a, a, an art scroll, um, stone chumash, it's on the bottom of page 392, the second to last line, the last full line there. Um, if not, it's um, chapter uh, 17 in, in Shmos, in Exodus, chapter 17, verse 16, okay? And you'll see there, it refers to the throne of glory as case 
yud hey. Two, two, two separate words. Case, yud hey. And that means the throne of God. The throne of God. Now, what's so amazing about the phrasing, the way it appears in the Torah right there, is that it's spelled incomplete. Because really it should say kise, which means chair or throne. It should say kise Hashem, and spell out the full name of God, Yudke Vavke. But that's not what it says in the Torah. It says, case Yudhe, case Ka, we'll say. So you see the letters are missing the letter Aleph from case, Kise, should have an Aleph there and spell the full name for throne, Kise, but it just says case because it's missing the letter Aleph. And then it should say the full name of God, Yudke Vavke, but only the first two letters are there. The Vav and the He, the last two letters are missing. Okay, so we're going to spend some time talking about that now. So the simple explanation is that as long as evil exists in the world, the fullness of the revelation of God is covered over, and that's why those letters are missing. Okay, because in this dimension that we live in, the fullness of the revelation of God's oneness is missing because God is hidden. Okay, that's, that's part and part with God's hiddenness. Okay. So, so we have that. Now, I'll tell you, just because it's such a great Torah, and by the way, you should know that all of the Rebbes give explanations on case Ka. All of the Rebbes give. There's a whole library of explanations on this. But I have to give you one just because it's so awesome. Okay? So... In terms of the Yudke Vavke, the fact that the letters Vav and He are missing. All right? But Yud and He are there. So this is from the Imre Noam, the Jikover Rebbe. Okay? He was the grandson of the Robshitzer Rebbe, who is like the top lieutenant to the Chos of Lublin, the seer of Lublin. And um, so what does the Jikover Rebbe say? He says, okay, you're missing the Vav He, that's true, but you have the Yud in He. Now, everybody knows that this holiest name of God, right? Another fancy word, the Tetragrammaton, right? That's the four-letter name of God. This name of God is a contraction of the words it was, is, and will be. In other words, all of existence all of isness, if you will, stretching over all of time. Was, is, and will be. Past, present, and future. That's what the Yudke Vavke is. Now, the Jikova Rebbe points out some, a genius observation, which is that the way you say was is Haya. Haya, you can spell with the two letters that are in the Torah. Right? Yud and He. You can spell was with the letters that are there. You don't need the missing letters for that. You can spell will be, yeah, the future tense, also with just the letters Yud and He. But you're ready for this? To spell the name of, to spell right now, Hove, is, is right now, God is right now. You need one of the missing letters. You need the vav. So in other words, a Amalek, right, which is this great nation that's the enemy of Israel trying to wipe out Israel. Remember Haman from the 
Pesach story and they say the Nazis as well were all descendants of Amalek. And Amalek is also this spiritual energy that tries to cover over and, and, and eliminate this clarity that God is one in the world. Okay? Amalek comes to you and says, you want to believe that there was a God? Okay, that's okay. You can believe there was a God. You want to believe that, yeah, one day, one day, humanity is going to get it together and everything will be fixed. In the future, there will be a God. You want to believe that? Okay. But you want to believe that there's a God right now in your life? No way. No way. You're kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself if you think that there's a God right now. See, because you can't spell the present tense without one of the missing letters that's not there because a Amalek is covering it over. So a lot of times in our own private religious lives, our own personal spiritual connection to God, we felt God in the past and we understand, okay, maybe down the line I'll, I'll feel him, but right now he doesn't seem to exist. He doesn't seem to be present at all. This is the energy of a Amalek covering over that buff. Right? But it's there. It's there. God, God never ceases to be here. And you know what the greatest proof that God is here right now? Do you know the greatest absolute slam dunk proof that God is here right now? Because you're here right now. <laughs> if God wasn't here right now, you wouldn't be here right now. You would just disappear in a second. So the very fact that you're here is proof that God's here. And the irony is that while you're here thinking that God's not here, God is, you, you couldn't be here thinking God is not here unless God was here, because otherwise you wouldn't be here. Do, do you understand the irony of this? It's funny, but it's tragic, but it's funny, you know? So if you're here, God's here. You don't have to worry. Um, okay. But I want to say something else. That's the, that's the Jikover Rebbe, right? And, uh, and now let's, let's uh, reset. Because I want to go back and I want to say my own, my own idea um, about, this, about the missing letters, Olive, Vav, and He. Okay, so remember it says, should say, Kisei Hashem, Yudke Vavke, the throne of glory, but instead it says, Kes Ka, we're missing the olive and we're missing the Vav and the He. So, you know, whenever there are different paradigms to understand the, the map of the universe, including the spiritual worlds, one of the maps of the universe, so to speak, is taking the name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke. And, and to do that, I, I always recommend you think of it as the Yud on top, and the He beneath that, and the Vav beneath that, and the, he, the last He beneath that. So it's sort of like spelling the name of God top to bottom. Because it's sort of like, it's kind of like a ladder from this world all the way up into the infinite worlds. Okay? So in that visualization, the bottom Vav and He stand for the revealed dimensions. Okay? And then the top Yud and He 
are beyond, 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 beyond. Those are like the heavenly dimensions. And one of the ways that we know that this is true, or one of the illustrations of this in the Torah, comes from the B'nai Yisachar, who there's a, there's a classic verse that we read over and over again, especially during Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is that the revealed sins are for us to fix, but the hidden sins, like, whatever. We have to take care of the, the revealed things. So the things that we know that we've done wrong, we've, we're responsible for that. We have to take care of that. The hidden things are, are for God, basically. So when it says the, the, these words, and by the way, this phrase is so important. It's one of the very rare instances in the Torah where the, um, where the scribal tradition is to put dots over, the, over these words. Like very few words in the entire Torah have dots over them. And what that means is basically the rabbis are saying, really pay attention to that. <laughs> like, like it's really important, that phrase. So when it talks about the revealed things, right, the word that it uses for the revealed things is niglos. That's the revealed. niglos. And the B'nai Saskar says, look, Veha is vavhe niglos, revealed. In other words, the vavhe of the yudke vavke represents the revealed dimensions. <laughs> Another super genius insight of how the Torah is the blueprint of reality, right? Vavhe are the revealed dimensions. That's how he's reading it. Okay, so these, these bottom stretches of the vavhe, that's, 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 that's where we're at and, and above us. Okay, good. And now we say the Aleph is missing, too, right? So the Aleph is missing and the Vav He is missing. So Aleph, everybody knows, stands for Hashem. Aleph is Gematria 1, and God is 1. So there's a very nice connection right there. If we go a little bit deeper... And now we're going to actually spend a lot of time on this in a few minutes. But the letter Aleph is actually composed of three letters, right? You have the Yud above, a diagonal Vav, and a Yud below. That's the letter Aleph. And that adds up to two Yuds is 20. The Vav is six. That's 26. So isn't that interesting? That the letter Aleph, which is one, which stands for the oneness of God, is composed of three letters, which add up to 26, which is the gematria, the numerical equivalent of Yudke Vavke, God's holiest name. So you see within the letter Aleph, it's really super high holy God energy, right? Okay, good. So now let's put it all together and make a nice narrative out of it, just very simply. So we're saying that the souls of Israel are leaving from the throne of glory. Right? And that the throne of glory is missing these letters, Aleph, Vav, and He. Vav and He stands for this dimension. Aleph stands for the oneness of God. So what is the job of a soul leaving from the throne of glory down into this world, down into the Vav, He, is to reveal the Aleph the oneness of God. In other words, our job is to take these missing letters, the Vav He, which is this dimension, and to reveal the other missing letter, 
the oneness of God, the Aleph. That's our job, to reveal the Aleph in the Vav Hey. Is that clear? Because I don't, I don't think I can make that more clear. <laughs> Unless I'm in front of a blackboard, in which case it would be a little bit more clear. But hopefully these concepts we've been really dealing with for years. So hopefully, hopefully they're kind of carved in your brain anyway. Um, so again, just on a simple logic level, we want to reveal the oneness of God in these, in these dimensions. That's the simple way of saying it. But if you're tracking it in terms of the beauty of the missing letters and everything like that, we've got three missing letters, Aleph and vav Hey. vav Hey stands for this dimension. We want to reveal the Aleph, the oneness of God in this dimension. That's it. That's it. Okay. So how do we do it? How do we do it? So since vav Hey, vav Hey represents where we, are, where we are, but revealing the Aleph... That's our mission. So, so now we have to just switch gears ever so slightly, and we have to zero in, zoom in on the Aleph. Because of our job, we're already in the Vav Hey. We did that part. We're we, we made it down. You know, we got off the heavenly greyhound bus into this dimension. Our soul got parked into a body. We're in the Vav Hey. Now how do we do the next part of our mission, which is, which is the hard part of the mission? How do we reveal the Aleph? Okay. So our job is to reveal the Aleph, the oneness of God. How do we do it? So let's look at the letter Aleph. And now I'm drawing from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who's, you know, one of our greatest Kabbalists. And he had the Kabbalistic tradition from the Vilna Gon, who is about two generations after the Vilna Gon. Okay? Super awesome like planetary size genius, okay? So he just sees so many unbelievable things in the letter Aleph. Again, have in mind what the Aleph is. The Aleph is three letters. It's the upper Yud, a diagonal Vav, and a lower Yud, okay? So the first thing that you need to know is that, that that letter Aleph is in itself another map of the universe. Okay, we're kind of zooming in, like worlds within worlds. Okay, now what is this universe map that the Aleph is? Now, the letter Yud is very interesting. Remember, the letter Aleph is composed of two Yuds, an upper Yud and a lower Yud, okay? Separated by that diagonal Vav. What does the letter Yud represent? Well, the letter Yud is kind of like a partner letter to the letter Aleph. The letter Yud also represents godliness because it's the first letter of the Yud Ke Vav Ke. And in fact, where the letter Aleph is getting a lot of its oomph is from the letter Yud. Now, what's so interesting about the letter Yud is if you draw a line, a baseline, like on the Torah, like the written line of the Torah, there's 27 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. 22 regular letters and five final letters. So you've got 27 letters. There is only one letter in the entire 27 letters which doesn't hit the bottom line. Only one letter that floats up in the air, and that's the letter Yud. Isn't that interesting? And that that's the most godly letter. It's just suspended. It's <laughs> just suspended in the air. 
It's, in, it's, in, it's beautiful, actually. It's, it's awesome, actually. You know, some of the letters will go below the line, like a kuf or a final nun, right? Most of the letters hit the bottom line, but only one letter floats above the line, and that's the letter yud. So it would be very appropriate if there's only one letter that does that, that that should signify God. And in fact, it does, because it's the first letter of his holiest name, yud ke vav And again, if you refer back to that mental chart of that ladder of the name, the yud is at the very height of, 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 of his name. So it's like beyond, 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 beyond. Okay, good. So, 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 Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says the letter Aleph stands for a map of the universe. How so? Because that upper Yud stands for like the highest reaches of godliness. I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying godliness and not God very intentionally because God is beyond any form. He's, he's like I used to say to my kids, God doesn't have a body. He makes bodies, right? God, anyone who says, Okay, God fills the world, right? That's what we say. God fills the world. But anyone who says God is the world, that's excommunication, right? That's where Spinoza got kicked out. We, we say God fills the world and exists beyond the world. That's, that's Judaism. We don't say God is the world and the world is God. No, God fills the world and transcends the world simultaneously. Okay, God is in time and beyond time. Okay, very important, very important. So, so we have the letter Aleph, all right, and now we're showing how this is a map of the universe. So the upper level, the upper letter Yud of the Aleph represents the higher reaches of God of, of godliness, of godliness. Then you have the diagonal vav. The diagonal vav represents the rakia. The rakia is translated as the firmament. What that means is basically the beginning of the physical universe. Okay, where the spiritual worlds are now entering into some sort of material universe, okay? That borderline is what we'll call the rakia, okay? That's the diagonal line. And then the bottom yud is representing God as he exists in the hidden, hidden dimensions within this world because below that diagonal line, that's already where we're at, okay? So... You know, the lower yud is representing, it's representing a few, few things, actually. The upper yud and the lower yud are actually representing a few things. You can say that the upper yud is representing um, the um, Kabbalistic depths of Torah, and the bottom yud is representing the revealed dimensions of Torah. That's one of the things Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver says. You can say that it represents the upper waters and the bottom yud represents the lower waters. By the way, the Torah says that 
Torah and water mean the same thing. Okay? By the way, that's... I don't want to get off the track, but you should know that when... that, that Rabbi Wolfson brings us, I believe from the Zohar, that when God brought the flood, the 40 days of the flood that we just read about in Parshas Noah, God intended to actually give us the Torah at that time. Isn't it interesting that Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and the flood came for 40 days and 40 nights. Isn't it interesting that the Torah itself says that when you see, anytime you see the word water, it means Torah. So actually, God wanted to bring this revelation of Torah during the time of Noah, because Noah was called a super holy person. But the generation wasn't worthy of it. The generation wasn't worthy of it. And so the spiritual aspect of Torah came down in its material form, which is water. Okay? So, just, I mean, there's no, there's no short of fascinating, folks. (laughs) This is like, (laughs) when you're dealing with the Torah, you're not going to run out of amazing. All right? That's just, that's just why the Torah is so great. That's why we're looking at it, right? That's why we're trying to spend our whole lives like just trying to get closer to the Torah, to, to God, right? Right? It says that, that the Torah, so to speak, is the mind of God. If it's boring, it's because you're boring. You know? I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, it's, we got to be real. So, um, so, so the 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 upper yud can be can be the higher waters because it says in the beginning of, of the creation account in the beginning of the Torah it says God separated the upper waters from the lower waters so it can be the higher waters the lower waters it could be the revealed aspects of Torah the hidden aspects of Torah it can be the upper reaches of God it can be God as he exists hidden in this realm. But it can also be, I'd like to say, godliness, that's the upper yud, and your soul would be the bottom yud. Because what is your soul? Your soul is a piece of God. But it's encased within your body. It's hidden. Right? Because all of this, remember, the whole world, what's the world? What is the world? The world is an ongoing conversation that God is having with himself. <laughs> because what's your soul? Your soul doesn't belong to you. Right? Like Rabbi Green famously asked, Who are you? You're not your body, because you leave your body after 120. And you're not your soul, because your soul is a piece of God. So if you're not your body and you're not your soul, who are you? So you know what the answer is? It's a fantastic answer. You are the sum total of the decisions you make in this life. That's who you are. When you stand before the the heavenly court after 120, what's going to be standing there? It's not your body and it's not your soul. 
It's going to be the decisions that you made over the course of your lifetime. That's what's going to stand there. Okay, so we have to get back to the question. Does anyone remember the question? Our job is to reveal the Aleph, the oneness of God, in, in this realm. So how are we going to reveal the oneness of God, the Aleph, in this realm? That's the question. So remember, so we've got the Aleph. So, so the Aleph is the upper Yud, and then it's the lower Yud, and all the things that that stands for, and the Vav in between. Now, many of you have seen this name of God. It's mostly in prayer books. It actually does not appear in the Torah at all. What is this name of God? Yud Yud. Very common, very common to see that as referring to God. The letters Yud Yud doesn't appear in the Torah at all. So where does this name of God come from? Because it's, it's used very commonly. Where, where is it coming from? So you have, remember, you have different divine names. And the different divine names, we always have to give this introduction. We're not chas v'sholom, God forbid, talking about different gods. We're talking about only the oneness of God, master of heaven and earth, God of Israel. That's all we're talking about. But different names are used to describe how God is manifesting himself at this moment in time. Is he manifesting himself in a, in a, in a merciful way? If that's the case, you'll have Yudke Vavke, because that, that signifies love. What about if he's manifesting himself in a judgmental way, meaning like he's bringing down justice at that moment? Then you might have Elohim, right? So different names of God are signifying how is God manifesting his divine energy at that moment? Okay. Now you've got two partner names that, that are used kind of like together. And that's the Yudke Vavke, which we've been talking about. That's the sum total. But you've got another name, which is also, by the way, pronounced Adonai. Okay? But it's spelled this way. Aleph Dalit Nun Yud. And that means master. Like in, in, in Israel today, like if someone wants to give you a honor or covet, right? Maybe in English we would translate it as sir. They'll say Adoni. Which, which means my master, but they, you know, they just mean it in a nice way, like sir, okay? So, but this is actually a variant of a divine name, which means God, master of this world. Or the way I saw Reb Shlomo put it one way, master God within borders. Very interesting way of saying God within the natural order. God within borders. So in that way, here are the partner names, Yudke Vavke and Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. And now we can, with this, we've got a more sort of like um, fluent, accurate way of talking about God. Because what we mean is God of heaven, God of earth. Right? God as he exists in, you know, the beyond, beyond, beyond sense and God as he exists within nature. Okay, so the, that's why they're like partner names. 
So they add up to the number 91, and we've done zillions of Torahs about the number 91, because we're talking about really, like it's a nice way of talking about the totality of God. God in this world, God in the next, heaven and earth. Okay, very good. So now in, in Sephardi, Sephardic um, prayer books, you have these two divine names intertwined all the time. Aleph, Dalid, Nun, and Yud, and Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke. Just open up any Sephardi sitter, and you'll see they're both four-letter names of God, and they're intertwined to show you this like amazing fusion of heaven and earth, that you should kind of see it, and you can experience it a little bit more if you see it on the page. Okay, very good. But now, remember, we're answering a question. Where did this name of God, Yud Yud, come from, since it doesn't appear in the Torah? Now we have our answer. The first Yud is of the Yud Ke Vav Ke. The last Yud is the last letter of Aleph, Dalid, Nun, and Yud. So now when we go Yud Yud, what we're talking about is God of heaven and earth. That's where this name is coming from. Okay. Now, let's go back to the letter Aleph, because now comes another genius insight from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver. Remember, the, the letter Aleph is an upper Yud and a bottom Yud and a Vav in between. Well, if you take these two divine names, Yud Ke Vav Ke and Aleph Dalad Nun Yud, remember you've got the upper Yud and the lower Yud. Vav that comes in between is the number six. You have six letters in between the two Yuds. <laughs> so when you have the upper Yud, then you have the Vav signifying all the letters of Yud Ke Vav Ke Aleph Dalad Nun Yud. So you've got the revealed Yud and the bottom Yud and the Vav in between of the letter Aleph are the six letters between these two divine names, completing the divine names. You get it? What's the six letters? No. Okay, so the letters, the six letters would be, pick, picture in your mind, a Yud in the front and a Yud at the end, right? And then you've got a Vav in the middle, but Vav is the number six. So the Vav is the six letters in between. That would be Hey, Vav, Hey, Aleph, Dalid, Nun. Those are the six letters in between the two Yuds, spelling out and completing the two divine names of God. Vav is the connection between heaven and earth. And Vav is the connection between heaven and earth. Very good. So, so you got it now? Okay. So now, but he goes further, right? He says they're also Vav is also standing for the six orders of the Mishnah. The six orders of the Mishnah are also known as Torah Shabal Peh. So, so again, we have to keep track of what our question is. <laughs> Information stampede here. We have to Keep track of what problem we're trying to solve. What does it mean to reveal the Aleph? That's what we're trying to figure out. But we're learning a lot about the Aleph, because if our job is to reveal the Aleph, we have to know what the Aleph is, right? So, so, so the Aleph now we're figuring out is not just a map of the universe, not just a signifier of God, heaven, and God of earth, but it's also 
this interface, there's that letter Vav in between. There's this interface between us and God. What is that interface? The Torah Shabal Peh, which is basically our share in the Torah. Our share in the Torah means, it's, it's also translated as the oral Torah. That means our ability to explain and live the Torah. Our ability to understand and live and explain and teach the Torah and plumb the depths of the Torah. In other words, you know, when God throws the Torah to us, then it becomes Torah Shabal Peh. That's our job. Okay? Okay, very good. Now, listen to this. And let me just remind you of one thought going into this, this Gomorrah. You know, it says, beautiful, amazing Rashi, says that when Moshe Rabbeinu, like after the whole Torah was given at Mount Sinai, God continued to speak to Moshe Rabbeinu. How and where would he do that? So, so Moshe would go into the Mishkan, right? The holy tabernacle. And there would be the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron Kodesh with the Luchos in it, the tablets from Mount Sinai. And then there were these two golden angels with their outstretched wings. And in between the wings, Moshe would hear the voice of God. And if you, the description of that in the Torah, if you look at the Rashi there, Rashi says something mind-blowing, which is that Moshe would stand there and he would listen. You ready for this? He would listen to God talking to himself. (laughs) Can you imagine? Like, so when we say that this entire world, when we say that your soul is a piece of God, when we say that this whole world is an ongoing conversation of God with himself, the totality of godliness in this world, this is amazing. Okay. So now the Torah Shabal Peh, this is our share in the Torah. Right? This is our role in this Torah that the whole world is made out of. Remember? Because God made the whole world out of the Torah. So this is where... The, the, the playing ground that we get to work in is Torah Shabal Peh, the oral law, the Talmud, it's also called, the Gemara, right? Halacha. All of this is Torah Shabal Peh. Now the Gemara says, it says in Gemara Shabbos, after 120, there are certain questions that were going to be asked by the heavenly court. And like one of them is, did you do business honestly? That's one of the questions. That's the first question that's listed in the Gomorrah, okay? Different questions. Um, Did you have a family? Or did you try to have a family? Or did you actually make shaduchim? Did you try to fix up other people so that they could have a family? Right, that's all within that question of having a family. Different questions. Now, do you know how many questions were going to be asked? How many questions did Gomorrah says? Six questions. Six questions. And do you know where they get the six questions from? From the six orders of the Mishnah of the Torah Shabal Peh. One question for each order 
of the Torah Shabal Peh. Now, what did we just say? We just said that that's our job. Our job, our share in this world, in constructing this world, is working within the oral law. At the end of our lives, we're asked six questions, one from each section of the Torah Shabbat Peh. Do you see how this is our role in the world? Now, I'll tell you something, just, again, you, you have to, like, just take a moment to try to understand this and rewind the tape and listen to it again if you need to, but I'll try to explain it as, as clearly as I can. This is a Torah from the Vilna Gon, okay, brought by Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haber. In Milo Satorah, in the commentary to Milo Satorah, that's where I saw it. So he says like this, you've got, you've got, basically what I'm trying to show you here, just so you understand where we're going, trying to show you how the oral law and the written law are all one. That's what I'm trying to show you, okay? And, and, and how they're all one, by the word, the word for one is echad, we're going to get into that in a moment, the way that you see that it's all one, or one example, one visualization of how you see that the oral law and the written law are all one, is, is, is right here. You ready? So it says, Shema Yisrael, you can count on your fingers, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem. We're going to stop right there. That's, I know there's one more word, but... I'm telling you what the Vilna Gon says. So, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem. That's five words. There are five books of the Torah, of the written Torah. Okay? Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuso Leolam Va'ed. That's six words. That's what we say after the Shema. There's six orders of the oral law. Okay? So, and then he says, and the Echad, right? The, the Echad shows you that the written law and the oral law are all one. Echad. <laughs> you've got the five books of the Torah, you've got the six orders of the Mishnah, and they're all Echad, one. And by the way, it goes one step further because the gematri of the word one is 13. And there are 13 hermeneutical principles, Rabbi Yishmol, of how you derive the oral law from the written law in the word Echad. It's hinting at not, that, not only that they're one, the oral law and the written law are one, but it's also hinted at exactly how you derive the oral law from the written law. <laughs> Again, it's, it's, it's endless. It's endless. The Torah is absolutely endless. So, our job is the oral law. So that's why at the end of 120, the heavenly court asks you one question from each of the orders of the oral law to see, were you the oral law? Did you do your job as the oral law? Because that's, that's what you were created to do. That's your job in this conversation that, is, that Hashem is having with himself. But you're, this is the crazy part. You are part of that conversation that Hashem is having with Himself. Like He made us part of this dialogue and put a piece of Himself in us to reveal aspects of Him. 